Welcome to the Exponential Podcast, where we help you live the life of a multiplier. Our mission is to empower you to take your life, leadership, and impact to the next level. In each episode, we'll explore strategies and insights to help you multiply your influence and calling in the world for Jesus. Today's episode is from Exponential 2023's Global Conference in Orlando, where we brought together some of the world's top leaders and innovators to share their insights and expertise. To experience more conversations like this, be sure to check out our upcoming events at Exponential.org. Randy Bolt was with us when he was 15 years old. They had this hot band that was playing around, and we were praying, oh God, we'd like to have them come and sing in our church. And one day I was out handing out literature door to door, and I met this lady, and she goes, oh, my daughter Sue would be interested in what you're doing. And so I meet Sue. And I find out that Sue, who's now married to Randy, they were dating, and Randy and the whole band were already attending our church, and I didn't know it. (laughs) And they went out and planted churches and pastored churches, and good things have gone on since then. And so, yeah, come on, sit anywhere you can. Thanks so much. And so, you young lady. Oh, Ruby. (laughs) This is my wife. Uh, uh, Drew from Southern Michigan, I'm pastor. Drew, Southern Michigan pastor, are you, sir? Uh, Miguel from our Lead Hikers, they worship. Good. James Johnson, Tampa, lead pastor. Tampa, lead pastor. Cool. Ed Hope, retired from Hawaii. Ed Hope is my really good friend from Hawaii, and uh, we we actually planted a church together uh, with a bunch of our friends. The last church I handed off when I was. I guess 66 years old, and we started a church in a movie theater, and uh, Ed's now in a Presbyterian church working mischief there, and uh, it's good mischief, good things are happening. Randy. Randy Ishida, little boy, just want to voice. Randy Ishida was in our church, then the last one, and he uh, started a microchurch with a guy who was... Uh, he had been a major in the police department, which is like right up toward the top. And he was uh, planning to kill himself, him and his wife, because their 20-year-old son on a football scholarship to somewhere uh, suddenly died of a heart attack, and boom. And they were so depressed, they are going to kill themselves. Randy is at a gym where the guy works out, makes friends with him, ends up starting a microchurch, because we've been preaching that in Exponential. And this is kind of what we're talking about a little bit today here. Take it out there. Don't try to bring them in here. And he starts a microchurch with those guys. And uh, one thing leads to another. Some guy comes out of prison because the police guy was helping guys coming out of jail get jobs. The guy comes out of prison, joins with them, and goes, Would it be okay if I start one of these? I live 35 miles away. And they just said yes. You know? I, I, I mean, some people get all worried about their ecclesiology and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, what kind of damage is a... Is a, is a guy who went into jail, a Christian, going to do to a bunch of ex-cons over there who are never going to come to your church in the first place? Well, then, Randy's got stage 4 cancer. And 15 months ago, he was told you got five weeks to live. And the drugs and the Lord have been keeping him alive. But I don't know if you guys saw the thing going around on Facebook that said, guess who died and it puts your name on it, on, on, on your Facebook account? Somebody did that to him. He thought it was specific to him because he was supposed to be dying. This is like eight weeks after he's told he's got five to live. 
and he gets mad at this guy. This is really a story worth hearing. And um, the the guy lives in Kenya, and the, and Randy put a big deal about I'm not really dying. I don't know why somebody put this on my thing. They hacked me or whatever. And the guy comes back with, well, why did you put that on the thing in the first place? Well, I did it. And then to get this argument going, I didn't do it. Well, why did you do it? I didn't do it. You know, somebody else did. And so he's about to pull the trigger on the guy and drop the hammer. And the Holy Spirit tells him, listen to this man. It turns out the church that Ed and I got started in Honolulu, for every two years for five years, and some guys would go back every year, but every two years for five years, we were sending a couple, about 20 people to Kisumu, Kenya, which is about a million people. And they'd go to a different neighborhood or village every time, and they'd put eyeglasses, they'd take an eye doctor with them, and they'd put glasses on um, usually a, a, a little over 2,000 people in a trip. And they'd come back saying, oh, 800 people accepted the Lord this time, 700 people accepted the Lord this time. And I'm thinking, I'm their pastor, I think, you guys are just recycling the same people, the same people pray the same prayer year after year. I found out they never went to the same village twice. So there's this guy named Peter, who is a boy, was helping with these eyeglass clinics in Kenya. He gets in a fight with Randy over, did you die or not die, and why do you say all this stuff? Randy begins to listen to him and finds out that he actually is a part of a ministry our church had in Kenya. And our guys had trained people to do the mini-church model that we do, and how to plant churches from there. And this pastor, Sammy, had gone from one church to 45 already. But this Peter kid is now a welder. He's married and all that. He's got a motorcycle. Randy starts coaching him on how to do microchurch, what you would read in, oh, i got a couple books i got to promote to you. What you would, these are free, so it's easy for me to sell them. Um, this one is on the website. Uh, exponential website, how nearly anyone can start a microchurch. And what you're going to hear today comes out of this book, Equipping Everyday Missionaries in a Post-Christian Era. And so Randy teaches this guy, Peter, how to do microchurch. And he's been invited to Uganda. He's been invited to different denominations. If you've got to walk four and a half miles to get to your church, which is a tin roof over nothing, and you could instead start a church in your village and lead people to the Lord there, you're going to choose to do that, and it costs zero dollars. And how many churches have come out of Peter now? About 30. And then Peter kind of got into the, I want to denominationalize these people and build them around me and monetize it and all that. And so some things do go haywire, but thank God for those 30 churches. huh? And Peter introduced Randy Again, these people have never met other than on WhatsApp and Facebook. Uh, to, to a guy named Simon in Uganda. And how many churches have come out of Simon? Uh, in two months, about 15. And he's been invited to Tanzania, Rwanda, and South Sudan to did, did you hear what he said? About 15 churches in two months. He's been invited to Rwanda. Tanzania and South Sudan from Uganda have 15 microchips in two months' time. So the model that you're looking at from Exponential, the stuff that's in the book that I wrote, the other stuff that's there, 
is is the kind of stuff, think about this, and this is not really what I'm supposed to be talking about today, but it sort of bridges over. If you talk to somebody that you see that has tattoos all over their arms, you ask them this question. Did you get most of those tattoos from the same tattoo parlor or whatever they're called? They're going to tell you yes. And what we need to know in this post-Christian America where we live is that that tattoo parlor is is a pseudo-church without Jesus or God in it. Does that make sense? Somebody is the pastor of that tattoo parlor. It may be the owner. It may be some other guy. If, if, if you go to the kind of a bar that's not some cool sports bar, but it's kind of a sleazo bar, you know, where people hang out there every single night and they sort of live there, somebody's the pastor of that bar. It might be the bartender. It might be somebody who hangs out there and plays pool. There's somebody that is shepherding these people and that somebody doesn't know Jesus. And so what we want to talk about now is how do we get the people who are maybe in my church, my little oikos, and we love each other to death, but, you know, I, I was at a church meeting not too long ago, and everybody there was talking about doing ministry to somebody. The pastor had preached about that. But everybody there talked about somebody in the church that they were going to minister to and exercise their spiritual gifts. Nobody talked about reaching out to somebody else. And so what we really want to be thinking about is how do we turn our people into spiritual archaeologists to go, what people groups am I associated with and how can I take Jesus into that people group? And I don't mean go hammer them with the four spiritual laws. What I mean is build a friendship. That's what that book, Equipping Everyday Missionaries, is about. I'm an introvert. I can get up here and do this all day and bore you to tears. But if i got to talk to you out there in the hall, and I don't really already know you, I don't even know what the heck to say. It was really hard as a pastor after church. You know what I learned? I learned a really good secret. I would stand in the doorway with the back of the doorpost to, to my back and the door like this, so I could shake people's hands and kind of pull them through the door so they wouldn't stand there and talk to me because I didn't want to talk to them. So I I evangelize, but I evangelize by making friends and then get to a point where we finally pray about some problem in their life, not that we pray to accept Jesus, but once you prayed with them, then they start wanting to know more and you get a chance to then bring the gospel in. It takes me a while. I was two weeks ago in Atlanta at an exponential deal and my pastor was with me. The guy's an evangelist. I mean, and I think most A-past Evangelists, Ephesians 4 evangelists, are, are, to me, they're weird. You know, they just talk to everybody all the time. And, and we, we were on four flights to get, fly southwest, you gotta stop, you know. And, and, and he had four conversations, spiritual conversations on four flights. Two hour flights at the longest. And one of them was a believer. The other three he led to the Lord. We got in there late at night. The only place open was the Irish pub. We go in there, and there's a kid named Amos in there, and he's a Gen Z, and he has, actually his dad's a pastor of an ultra-liberal church, and this kid doesn't know the gospel. As we start asking him questions, he didn't understand that part of the Bible. He'd read parts of the New Testament. He didn't understand that part of the Bible. And so he kept coming back and forth, back and forth, and pretty soon 
Robert's going, is there anything in your life? We pray. We're going to pray over the food now, but is there anything we could pray for you for? Go, yeah, pray for this. And so we did. And then he goes and does his thing. He comes back. Before the night is over, the, the prayer is, would, would it be okay, Amos, if we prayed with you, that Jesus would just make himself real to you? And, and, and you would, you would get that, that he, it's just that easy. But here's, here's the point. That kid Amos ain't coming to a church like mine. Somebody's gotta go to where he is. And our people are going to these places. You know, you could be in, in a church that doesn't believe in alcohol, and there's somebody in your church that's hanging out in a bar. And if you can figure out they have one foot in our little world and one foot in their little world, and they're the natural missionary to that thing, and you get off of, go win them and bring them to me. And you get on to that the gospel is not about come, it's about go. And go and make disciples. And you know how you best go and make disciples? You go and make friends. And then it kind of becomes a follow me as I follow Christ thing. And people will walk their way into a relationship with Jesus. And so, having said all that, this session is called Five Practical Prayers into a Personal Mission Field. It's part of a training I did called Equipping Everyday Missionaries. It's loosely based on this free book that you can get from Exponential. And if you want to know more about it, go to my website, which is ralphmore.net. And this man back here asked me, can we get this slideshow? Yes, you can. If you go here, fill out the little contact thing and, and then ask for it, and then I'll get it. Or, easier, my email is just ralph at ralphmore.net. Ask me, I sat in the session, can I have the thing, and I'll send you the thing. I'll be happy to do that. So five practical prayers, and here's my idea. I built a church off of Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 4. Acts chapter 2, 41 to 47. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, praise and worship, miracles happening, giving generously. But they had favor with the neighbors. And as a result, the Lord was adding to their number daily those which should be saved. So the assumption is, uh, especially in a persecution environment, that People come to Christ outside, out there. They don't come to Christ in here, which puts us in polar opposition to the seeker-driven movement of the past. What that movement did is it made the pastor into very much like a used car salesman. You know, you got the person who sets them up, and then you got the closer. So what we do is we get our people, we turn them not into evangelists, but into inviters, and their invitation brings them to church where we impress them with colored lights and smoke and music. And then I get up and close the deal. And then our churches, instead of becoming equipping centers, become um, pablum centers. We're, we're feeding, putting baby food out week after week after week. People are learning how to get saved over and over again. I was at a church recently, about a couple of years ago. The pastor got up and there were a thousand people in this room. It was a Friday night service. Big church, 5,000 probably altogether. The pastor says, you know, I only preach to the people who somehow know that they need Jesus but haven't found him yet. And he goes, I can prove that to you. If you've been in this church for less than five years, raise your hand. Almost everybody in the room, I mean 99.5%, raised their hand. 
In other words, if you're here for more than five years, you can't stand to be here any longer because you heard the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, and they never equipped you to be a missionary. So we assume first that people are going to get saved outside the church. That means we got to equip the people inside the church to do it outside, and that's where Ephesians 4 comes in, a pest. And here's a particular hobby horse of mine, and I know that I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of cutting loose. Usually I try to be better at exponential. They're going to have to edit this thing and all that, this audio tape they're making. But I have this little hobby horse deal. I was, I was a youth pastor, and then I became a pastor, and then I became the senior pastor, and then I became the lead pastor. The titles kept changing. The function only changed once from youth pastor to all that other stuff. But I, it, it began to dawn on me, there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're, 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 they're all plurals. And they're all in the body. So I'm pastoring a church of 2,000 people in Kaneohe, Hawaii. There's probably 300 pastors. We only were able to activate about 120 of them at any given time. But there's other people there who naturally just pastor other people wherever they are. There's prophets. The prophets, how to identify the prophets in your church is, they usually come to you with, why isn't our church doing this? And by the way, the right answer to that is, because God never put it on your heart till now. What can I do to help you? <laughs> and, and there's not a lot of those prophets in your church. They're there, and often they're an irritant. The evangelists in our church, oh my gosh, they're, they're the ones that's easy for them to share their faith, and, but they're there to equip us so we can learn to do the work of an evangelist, all of us, including introverted nerds, you know? And then the, the, the teachers, we, well, we're pretty good at identifying the teachers in the body, but all those are plurals, but here's the problem. If I got a business card that says, the pastor... Or I got a parking space that says reserved for the pastor. Then those other 299 pastors in our church, I just nullified their gifts. And that's kind of how we operate as churches. And, and the assumption that the people will make is if there actually are all five of these gifts, they must all reside in that man that we call our pastor. And it just emasculates everybody. It just keeps everybody out of the ministry. And so these are kind of the assumptions that bring me to the stuff about what I want to talk about. I think you're here to equip your people to do the work of an evangelist. And along the way, uh, I'm going to talk, i got a goofy term, I try to make a metaphor called uh, spiritual archaeology. But this is just five questions to ask yourself, five prayers to ask God. Tell me about myself. Show me my mission field. Show me where I belong, what I belong doing. So, I use this term, spiritual archaeology. It outperforms fishing pools. Now, so-called fishing pools are inward-focused. Spiritual archaeology looks outward. Back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, when all the seeker-driven thing was getting big, they would talk about creating fishing pools. And so, you, you know, I was at one thing, I talked at a camp someplace, and, and they had a whole bunch of men to get together, men's deal, and what you did is you went and shot real guns at real targets with real ammunition. Uh, you know? And that becomes a fishing pool 
we get guys to come and shoot guns so we can try to get them into our church and, and, and then they'll come on Sunday morning and they'll get saved and we evangelism. So we create these artificial things that we call fishing pools, and but it all is meant to draw people into a building. And it, it, it's the opposite of what I think I'm reading in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus says, as you go, make disciples pretty much everywhere you go. What he says in Acts chapter 1, I came up in a Pentecostal background, we all hung out really good in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Wait till the power comes upon you. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll have power. But then we stop. He goes on and says, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. What, what is your Jerusalem? What is your Judea? You know, when I was in Southern California, our, our, our Jerusalem was a little radius around our, our, our church. It was, it was kind of beachy, laid back, surfer dude, cool people. And, and then our, our Judea would be Torrance, California. They're kind of middle class white people like we were, but they weren't beachy and surfy and cool. And then to the northeast of us were uh, African-American people. And we tried and tried to plant churches there. We had some really sharp guys from the community, and we failed utterly. To the direct east of us were Hispanic people. And um, we did a pretty good job. We planted some churches there. Some people came to know Jesus. One of them, her uncle, started coming to our church. And he, he was probably third generation, but they still spoke Spanish at home. And he'd be there in church every week, loved us, and looked looked like he didn't know what to do with all these weird people around him because they're different than he is. So we got our little Jerusalem. We got our Judea, which is sort of like us. We got our Samaria, which is people who live close by, but they're different from us. And then we got the ends of the earth where... You know, while I was in Hawaii, the end of the earth to us basically was Japan. And, and so we put a lot of effort in that. But the local people in your church have their own Jerusalem, their own Judea, their own Samaria, and you got to help them to dig it out. And this is where we get this idea of archaeology. So that will be the end of that. <laughs> Let me just look off my notes. And so as I'm thinking about all this, I'm thinking about what can I do to equip our people Hold on, this is just totally not working. It was going in and out. So it was well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it this way. Okay, Book of James tells us, and I want people to pray. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to pray with them. I want to send them home thinking about it. One of the things that we did well in our church, probably one of the best things, was we linked what we're doing on the weekend to what they're doing in what most people would call a home group. We call it a mini-church. In the mini-church, we want the pastor of the mini-church to do weddings and funerals and baby dedications and baptisms and all that stuff. I, 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 when I first was a pastor, I sometimes would do three weddings on a Saturday morning. When I ended as a pastor, I would hang out with seven fanatical people every Saturday morning. I'd far rather do that than do the weddings. And so uh, if I can get somebody else to do the weddings and the funerals and all that stuff... And sure, we did the public stuff, but we only did it as a backstop because we didn't get enough people to do the right stuff. And the right stuff was go baptize them in a jacuzzi or, you know, whatever it is. And so um, I, I, I don't want to pray this for the people. I want to get them praying. And the book of James says that if you lack wisdom, then ask God and he'll give you wisdom and he won't get mad at you for asking and he'll give it to you liberally. But 
Don't be like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Figure out that if you're going to ask God something, He's going to tell you something, you're going to actually act on the thing that He told you. So I have a, a couple friends named Randall and Andy Kalama. And oddly, I'm telling Randall's stories, and, and Randall Kalama also has cancer, although he's not as bad as this guy over here. And um, a number of years ago, Randy was uh, Randall was a paid worship leader in our church. Uh, we had seven services a weekend, to, so we could use a small building to a greater extent, and that included a high school service and a junior high service. We would have a different band in every service, so we're not overdriving people. And people go, "How do you get that many worship leaders?" Especially when you got 13 people in a band. Well, sometimes you just don't plug them in. They're learning how to play, and so you don't plug them in, or they're, they're, they don't know the songs that well. But they 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 could do the job if you let them. Because usually we won't let them, because we didn't train them enough. And so you put them up there with a microphone that's not plugged, and they know it's not plugged in. We're not, you know, not lying to them, but we're making disciples everywhere we can make disciples to do everything that we are doing. And so uh, these guys, Randall and Annie, they they come to us and they go, well, "We're still part of this church, but we're not going to be here anymore, because God's called us to be missionaries to Chinatown and Honolulu." My friend Ed sitting here in a sense, as a missionary at Chinatown, in that they, they operate a mission down there. And, and he, he's part of the board and raises the funds and all that kind of stuff. But Randall and Annie take their tithe, and they rent a whacked-out little storefront, and they, 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 they put a little sign up uh, that it's a church called PS150 for Psalm 150. And so they start on Wednesday nights holding church meetings, and, and the residents are the people who run the church. They do the offerings, they, they meet people at the door, whatever. They're the homeless people, the drug addicts, whatever. They bring them into, and people's lives get transformed. And the thing starts to grow, and it gets to be like seven nights a week. We bring different churches into diff- different nights of the week on a regular basis. And, and then they were able to give it to somebody else. And they moved to New Mexico and worked with Native Americans for a while. And then they came back into... Kaneohe, where we lived, and I don't know the name of the place now, but it used to be called Rosie's Boathouse, and it's kind of a kind of a low-life bar. And these people don't drink alcohol, but God's called us to the. I'm going to call it Rosie's Boathouse because that's what I remember. God's called us to Pastor Rosie's Boathouse. Oh, you mean by Pastor Rosie's Boathouse? Well, we're just going to go there every Sunday night and eat dinner. And, and there's these people that are there seven nights of the week. And if we stay there long enough and eat dinner long enough, we're going to make friends with these people and we're going to pastor Rosie's Boathouse. So what we're doing is we're trying to take the gospel out to a microchurch. Mike, getting there? Sven Anders was my mechanic. I had unfortunately bought a real old used Corvette that was not like a classic. It was like a broken down. <laughs> and uh, and one day it broke down, and somebody told me this guy's you know half mile from the church. And I went down there. We became really good friends. And uh, he grew up in a rough area in Detroit, and he was kind of used to rough people. And uh, he had this little two bay auto shop garage, and it was on a driveway that was about 150 feet long to get into where his thing was. And he would uh, every Tuesday morning he'd push the cars out. And he, he held church down there for some guys that were basically drug addicts. And there was a Harley shop next door, and these guys hung out in the Harley shop. That was their pseudo-church, till Sven started a church for them. Now, here's the weird thing. 
every one of those people Sven brought up the hill a half mile to our wonderful church. And it was a good church. And they only came one time. Because they didn't culturally fit with us. We're multi-ethnic extremely, but we're also extremely middle class. And they just didn't fit. So Sven has a little church for like eight people. That's the kind of thing that we'd like to see happen. Not that you should go copy what I'm saying, but hopefully that it would give some vision to you, the things that I'm saying. So getting these people to pray and go, God, show me. And, and so if I can keep my computer on. First is, who are my kind of people? So if you could have seen the picture that I had up there, is a bunch of old bald-headed guys with a surfboard. Uh, here, here's my kind of people. I am a perpetual wannabe surfer, which means I can surf, but I'm not a surfer. I'm not good enough that I could ever call myself a surfer. And I'm old, and I'm white. So my kind of people that it's easy for me to tell lies with and swap war stories are, are old, white, ex-surfer guys. I don't even fit with the real surfer guys that well. There's one in my church, and very quickly he began, you could tell he knew that I'm a fake. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, figuring out who, who, who are your kind of people, who do you fit with the best, because that's your primary calling. That's your, your Jerusalem, your personal Jerusalem. Now, I live in a neighborhood that's very multi-ethnic. It's mostly Iraqis whose families came over here in the first Gulf War. And, uh, and, and then there's quite a number of African-American folks. And then there are some Vietnamese. And I'm sort of close to some of the Iraqis. Uh, I met a Syrian, and I found out that the Syrians and the Iraqis don't like each other. And it's like, you guys are cousins. Get over this. And then, uh, but I'm pretty tight with my next-door neighbor, the Vietnamese guy, because the Lord spoke to me one night. I was reading that horrible book called The Art of Neighboring. I have never finished it yet. Every time I read it, I get so convicted. I read another chapter and then I put it down. This has gone like for three years. You should buy it. And I realize that we, where we live is on a hill, so the houses are stair-stepped down. And every time that I talk to my neighbor, Tony, it's because he walked up the hill and, and it came to my garage because I happened to be out there. And I begin to feel convicted. Why don't I go to where Tony is? go hang out with Tony. And so I, I started doing that. And not long after that, he was having some problems. He's a house flipper, and he was having some problems. And we got to pray together. And one thing just leading to another, to another, to another. My wife is really tight with African-American family down the road. This is our Jerusalem, and, and this, is, this is our calling. So the, the first question is, who are my kind of people? The second question, if I can get this thing to work is who did God put in my path? Who, who is there in, in, in the workplace? Again, this is not for you guys that are pastors. This is for you guys that are pastors to get your people to pray. God, show me who you're putting in my path. Who is there that has a need that's in my life that wants to hear a little bit more about what I got to share? Or maybe who did you put in my path because they're that person in our office that most of the people don't like. And, and I'm supposed to love them. And so I'm going to make an appointment that we go to lunch every Thursday and just hang out a little bit. And we'll, and we'll find a way to, to, to get Jesus into the conversation and, and to get Jesus into our lives. 
the third question is, where do I see pain in others? You know, I, I, I'm old, right? When you're old, what you talk to other people about is your doctor's appointments and, you know, I, I, my, my knee, I've been going to physical therapy because my knee pops when I walk. Now it's starting to hurt. So I, I got stuff in common, with, but I can understand the pain that's in others. Because of my relationship with my friend Randy, who's going through this extreme thing. He's got a bottle of pills in his pocket that costs an insurance company $24,000 for those pills. Well, I know some people whose insurance company won't pay for their pills. And so you commiserate with people. You you empathize with people. And say, if if I turn this whole thing into, you got to come to church to hear, uh, it doesn't work as well as, how are you doing? You know, is it, could I, would I, would I have permission to pray with you? You know, I always, cause this is me, I, 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 and sometimes I'm the brave guy, but sometimes I'm the coward. And so, my, the, the prayer would go like this, um, you know, I, I, if I'm the coward, is, it, I, I pray every night, you know, I've followed Jesus, I pray, would it be okay tonight when I pray? Could I have your permission to pray about what you just told me? That prayer opens doors for lots and lots of people. And if you're brave, then you go, um, let's just pray right now about this. And you, and you sit there and you pray. And you can do that in the shopping center. You can do that in the bar. You can do that anywhere you are. But you, you, you just do it. So getting our people to begin to understand, I'm a missionary. God's called me. He's called every believer to be a missionary to the little culture that is around me. And, 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 and here's entree. Because one of the things that we've done is, is kind of, you're an inviter because you're too afraid to share the gospel because you tried that before and people got mad at you. Or that you are good enough that you can, you can go and preach apologetics at people and, and confound their arguments, but then you better be really good at that for that to work. <coughs> and the truth is, it often doesn't. I, I tell a story all the time. When I was still a youth pastor, I took a couple of kids. We, a bunch of us went out before, you know, way before 9/11. We could go to the airport and go into where the people waited for the planes. And so I took these young kids into LAX, and uh, we, we we were going around with the four spiritual laws. And we met this kid, and he was a philosophy major at the University of California in the People's Republic of Berkeley. <laughs> and he, uh, we, we started talking to him about Jesus, and as soon as we hit on the word resurrection, he, he just lit up, and he goes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can destroy the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can destroy any argument for Christianity. And it's like, game on, buddy, because I've been reading Josh McDowell and C.S. Lewis, and, and you know what? I won. I left that kid, these two kids that were with me, they thought I was a hero. And this kid... He was a junior. He knew his stuff, right? Hanging his head. We just beat him up. But you know what he never did do? He never accepted Jesus. And so we got to find some other ways of equipping people. And here's what I found. You be friends. You empathize. You get to pray. And the conversation is going to turn spiritual. Over time. Sometimes if you're my pastor, Robert, in five minutes... But for most of us, it may take months. But 
But we're, what we're doing is we're, we're transforming our people into come to church with me people into how can I be part of your life people. And we begin to share the gospel that way. Uh, the, the fourth question that I always get people to pray is, where's God already working? And here's some of the ways that you know that God's working in people's lives. They hate church. They hate Christians. They read a Richard Dawkins book, so they are an atheist. That really is usually saying there's a spiritual vacancy inside of me, and, 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 I, and I don't know how to fill it, so I filled it with hate, but partly because I've been reading the news, partly I li- live in a woke culture. An interesting thing that I, I did in preparing for another thing that I was writing, I, I, I stumbled into a quote coming out of the Asbury Revival that said that Gen Z is so hollow spiritually and so hungry that this perhaps is their moment. One of the things that I think we have to look at when we look at the Asbury Revival is go back a little bit, a couple of years, to the chosen and to the to the open reception that that thing has gotten. Uh, I, I have an 81-year-old friend who has led a couple of people to the Lord by they hang out in a Starbucks or someplace every Saturday morning and they've been watching The Chosen together. And and uh, the atheist is now an agnostic. One other guy has now accepted Jesus. The Jewish guy is saying, this is really good. There's a little too much Jesus in it, but it's really good. <laughs> That's progress. That's moving people along. So you got The Chosen. And then think of the timing that could not be arranged by any kind of human of Jonathan Romey playing... Um, uh, Lonnie Frisbee in, in the Jesus Revolution movie, which if you haven't seen, you should see it. We lived in it. We, we met Chuck Smith two weeks before we started our church and that, he set the tone for us for what we would do. It was never Calvary, but we, that set the tone for us. And, and, and we, we knew all that stuff. And, and, and so you got, you got the chosen, you got the movie and the timing of the movie. It takes so long to get the money and to do all the hunky bunk and all that to get a movie going. And that the movie comes out just as they put the lid on the, the long prayer meeting in Asbury. I mean, like the weekend after. I think God made that kind of coincidence happen. And then what gives me real hope is secular universities are starting to have these elongated prayer meetings. Texas A&M, other schools. You know, start. I think there's room for hope. And so I came across this guy who said, it's, it's Gen Z's moment. It's the Holy Spirit trying to infuse himself into Gen Z. All we're hearing in the church is Gen Z is, is, is the most non-religious generation in the history of the United States. And that's true. But my pastor Robert last week, four people he led to Christ. Out of five he talked to, four he led to Christ. And you know what? If you meet somebody in two hours and you prayed with them and all that kind of stuff, not all that much happened except that you opened the door. But God says that one sows a seed, one waters the seed, and then the, the Lord comes along and gives the increase. And so, thank God for that. But on the way home, Robert is saying to me what this other guy was saying. He goes, I can't believe it, how easy it is to bring Gen Z to know Jesus. And he goes, there's such a spiritual vacuum. And they're filling it up with all this woke nonsense and, and politics and all this kind of stuff. But there's such an emptiness that you talk to them about Jesus, and, and they, they just want some of that. 
And one of the things that I watched when we were in the, with the guy Amos in the bar, he never really linked all the dots together. He never said, Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins. He just said, Jesus died for your sins. And the guy wanted to pray anyway. It's like, there, there's such a thing that the Spirit, because it's not us anyway. It's got to be the Holy Spirit breathing on it and doing stuff in people's lives. So where is God already working? Teach the people in your church to look for who's angriest with God. Because that's the person who's fighting against something called Holy Spirit conviction that's in their heart. And engage that person. Because it's so easy for us to go, no, or we don't like that person, or they're they're a threat to me. No, no, let's go engage them and find out what makes them tick and, 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 and see what the Spirit does from there. And then last is just, uh, who, who is reachable? Because there's, there's low-hanging fruit all around. And, and just to get people to pray, Lord, show me that person who is back to almost what the seeker-driven thing was about. They have a spiritual sense in their life, and there's a openness, and there's a hunger. And I mean, sometimes it's as corny as, I mean, during the day, back in the hippie days, it was cool. You wear some kind of Jesus t-shirt, somebody goes, what's that? And, and you live in the Lord. But there, there are those people out there right now, and they're they're needy and they're open, and we can reach them if we will. And so, I, I want you to think about a couple things. I, I want you to think about the demoniac of Gadara. I want to tell you a story, a church story. Uh, I have a friend. He's here, Jason Shepherd, and he leads a thing called Church Project, and he's doing a workshop, I think, right now. But if you guys go get the tapes of this thing, it would be really good to listen to Jason. And I did a podcast on my website, and Jason shared with us how um, he came up with this idea to help equip the men in his church to get outside their self and talk to other people. So he went to uh, like a sports bar where they serve alcohol, and he asked the guy, what is, what is the worst night of the week for you guys financially? And I believe he told me it was Sunday night. I can't remember. And the bar is kind of L-shaped. So he was able to say, okay, I want these like 10 tables, four chairs at a table, little round tables. I want these 40 seats. That may not be the exact. He may have said 60. I can't remember. It's a big, they got a big church, a lot of money. So he told the guy, I will pay for, if you give me this section every week, let's say it's Sunday night. Every Sunday night, I, I want to rent this section, and, and how I'll rent it is I'll buy two drinks per chair that's there. Two alcoholic or Coca-Cola, I don't really care. I'll just buy whatever is there for, for those four chairs for all those, that whole section. So then he went to his church, and he said, I'm going to do this thing, and you can come every Sunday night, and two drinks, the, the church will pay for. If you want more than that, you're on your own. If you want food, you got to buy it. They do all the wings that you can eat, all the chicken wings and all that. And so, But here's the deal. The, you, you can't come unless you bring a religious nun or a religious done. I have no faith in God, or I'm done with faith in God. If you bring one of them, then you can come, one per person. So at every table now, you got two believers and two non-believers. And he puts out a, a, a piece of scripture on the table in a paper, and he would print it like in NIV, and he'd print it in the old Living Bible. So it's 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 real accurate. It's also real simple. And then he'd get up and make an announcement after everybody gets there, and go, 
So I'm here. I'm the host of this thing. I just want to tell you kind of the ground rules are uh, the church is paying for two drinks for you. It's, it's on, on you after that, but we'll pay for two for whatever you want. And so there's alcohol involved, but he's not promoting alcohol. And I'm not promoting alcohol. But, you know, these are regular people that wouldn't normally be in church or anything else. And, and he goes, so I put a scripture on the table, and if you have a voice like God, please read the scripture out loud to the other people. And then what I'm going to do is give you about 20 minutes, 25 minutes to talk about this, and then I'll come up and kind of wind it down. So he said, what I really do is I give him 45 minutes. And he goes, I wait till the talk kind of cool off a little bit. Then I get up. And I tell everybody, um, you know, I just I just want to thank you all for being here. I want you to, remi- to remind you that I'm going to go pay the bill now. And so if you want anything else, you're on your own to buy whatever food you want, whatever you want. And i got another meeting to run to, so I'm out of here. Bye. He doesn't pray with anybody. He doesn't do anything but set the thing up and get them talking to each other. And And, and here's what he says as a result of that. He goes, some people actually are coming to Christ at that table. He goes, the greater result is the guys in my church are used to talking to non-Christians about Jesus, and they go do that at work. And we're seeing evangelism happen in the, you know, Acts 2, the neighbors. This is powerful. And I, so I, I go, so Jason, what kind of scripture do you put out there? So I'm thinking the Romans Road or you know that kind of thing. He goes, well, the last week we did this, this was just before COVID. He said, the last week we did this, the scripture was the story of the demoniac of Gadara. And I go, the what? And he goes, the demoniac of Gadara. And he goes, the question, he goes, I forgot to tell you, the question that we asked them when, when we put the thing on the table is, if there is a God, so you may be somebody who doesn't believe in God, we didn't offend you now. If there is a God, why do you think he let this be in his book? The demoniac of Gadara. If there is a God, why do you think that? And he goes, you get all kind of really good answers and really goofy answers, but but people are grappling with this stuff. And he and he goes, it's just put a change over all these men. It, it, it's incredible. And so, but I want you to think about the demoniac of Gadara, and I want you to think about this: that he decided they don't like us in here. <laughs> Time's up. No, they. I got. 18 more minutes, so time is not up. I, I don't know. Did you lean on it? <laughs> and there's no light switch? The lights are out in the hall, too, so maybe we're having a brownout or something. But think about this. The demoniac of Gadara wants to come follow Jesus. What does Jesus tell him after he's delivered? Go home. Go back to your neighbors. Go back to your friends. Go back to your kind of people. And that's what we really need to do is equip our people to stop thinking, come with us and go with them. The second thing is in Matthew chapter 9. And it's where Jesus gets into the wineskins. You know, one of the things that we don't want to do is run back and do radical things in our churches and wreck them because there's value in old wineskins. But Jesus is... Matthew 9, the word mercy, mercy, mercy keeps coming up in the scripture in that pass, in that one text. Mercy on, 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 a, on a, an official who might be part of the people who eventually would get him crucified. Mercy on a Gentile person who's very unlike Jesus. 
mercy on Matthew, who he calls to come and follow me. And then he goes and hangs out with Matthew and his sinner friends. And the religious people are calling him a sinner and a drunkard and a glutton. And then he says the wineskin thing. And then at the end of the passage, it tells us that he looks upon the people of Jerusalem and he weeps. <coughs> and he says to his disciples, the fields are white under harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers out into his harvest. And so what I want to really leave you with is that your, your role isn't to get people saved. Your, your role in the church is to equip the people to be the people who go back to their neighbors, to the people who go out into the harvest, to the people who go hang with those sinful people, to be the people who um, make friends with woke people. You know, my wife and I have a friend, um, he's our realtor. And it's weird, I keep telling cancer stories. I kind of don't want to keep doing that. But um, our friend... Uh, was our realtor when we moved from Hawaii to California, bought a house. And we, at that time, we knew our son and daughter-in-law and this guy, Tom. And so uh, we we asked Tom to uh, show us California because we wanted to share the Lord with him. So we go, would you show us where we live in San Diego? By take us, we'll go to a different restaurant every month, a different neighborhood every month so we get to know San Diego. And so we started going to different restaurants. And, 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 uh, and then along the way, he tells us, um, you know, I, I went to Catholic kindergarten, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, and Catholic graduate school, and I have never opened the New Testament in my life. And he's bragging. And um, we're, we're uh, you know, trying, we, we, but we very quickly got to praying with him. And then it come to a point where uh, we had to pray every time that we're together about whatever's going on in his life. Him, him insisting. And then we were at this one restaurant. It was right kind of down by the ocean. And uh, we had lunch and everything. We get up to leave. And Tom goes, uh, it, it was, it's like, we're just right here. Just talk to us. And he goes, hey, we forgot to pray today. And, and, and just grabs hands with both of us. And, and, and we, we have to pray to get out of there. Now, he will tell me all about Jesus. Jesus, if you didn't understand it, is a left-wing Democrat who voted for Biden. Because Tom will tell you. And, and so uh, that's how I found out he never read the, the, the New Testament. Because I go, Tom, the Jesus you're talking about isn't the Jesus I read about in the Bible. He wouldn't be a Democrat. He wouldn't be a Republican. Well, I never read the New Testament. And, and he gives me that whole thing. And he wants to argue. About, but now we're at the point where he's praying and now he's got cancer. And, and God, like through COVID, he's a realtor. And you know how many people were buying real estate during COVID? He sold two houses a year for 2019, 2020, 2021. God just opened doors for him. He, he's coming. Is he all the way there yet? I think in his heart he's accepted the Lord. I want to be out there with people like this. And what I forgot to tell you is Tom's a gay man. He's not flaunting it, but he's a gay man. And we, we found out that he was, I figured it out when I first met him. And one day we were at lunch in this restaurant and he starts going on about why he's against abortion. And I told him I'm against abortion. He says, well, I wouldn't pass a law against it. And I go, I wouldn't either. You wouldn't? 
you're an evangelist? He thinks evangelical means is evangelist. He goes, you're an evangelist? You wouldn't pass a law against this? And I, I go, no. I, I go, I, if, if God wants to change somebody's life, he'll change them. He does the miracles. I just follow him. Oh, well, I'm against same-sex marriage. And I go, me too. He goes, yeah, well, I'm against it because the whole point of marriage is procreation. And how could two gay guys have a baby? And I, I'm totally against that. And I go, well, I'm with you. And he goes, yeah, but I, I would never pass a law against it. And I go, I wouldn't either. In fact, I had to preach for 15 weeks of the armed guard in Honolulu, in, in Kaneohe, in the early days. When they, the anti-same-sex guys, some of them decided I was supposed to lead their crusade. And they weren't anti-same-sex, which I am. They're anti-gay people, which I am not. Because God loves them, and they're very different than me. And so I told him my little story about the policeman and all that. And and then he he, he comes in and he goes, "Well, um, I, I I I'm 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 a homosexual." And both my wife and I, in utter pure, polite, blurt out, "We knew that." <laughs> And he was shocked. And it's like, how did you know? And I go, well, I met you. I knew. <laughs> and, 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 but, and then it was like, we're not talking about that anymore. He shut us up. And then the next time we went to lunch, he starts making little gay jokes himself about you know, his situation. Has the gayness changed? No. Have I seen it change in a lot of people? Yes. But am I making that a prerequisite? No. Am I trying to get our people to go and make friends with people who are not like them, who need Jesus desperately in their life? That's what this is all about. And I'm done yakking. we got about ten more minutes if you got questions or want to throw darts. It's okay with me. Yes, sir. share with us what you did in Hawaii? In their years, you saw a network of We were in California. In 1971, with 12 people, there were mostly our friends. The piano player wasn't a Christian. It's the days when you played the piano and I wore a three-piece suit, all that. Within two weeks, there was... I wrote a book called Let Go of the Ring. It's on Amazon. You could read this whole story. Um, We led this girl to the Lord. Her friend brought her to the church the second week. And we went and led her to the Lord in her house. By the third week, she brought a bunch of her hippie friends. And I'm the pastor of now, we've grown 50%. There's 18 people. And there's hippies, a, a couple rough bikers, and a topless dancer named Kitten. And I'm on a three-piece suit and a tie. And we started to realize we have to change to acculturate to the people God sent to us. And I went home one day, I won't get into it, I went home and cried tears. God, why did you send me with these people? I don't belong here. But it's like, no, you changed and, and, and you, you know, I, I, I'm not going to smoke dope and do evil things or get drunk, but I'm going to go and be, I'm going to change the way I dress, stuff like that. And uh, it grew, and when I left California, there were, um, I was the 30th person to leave that church and go plant the church the church we had planted 12 years earlier. We went to Hawaii. We thought we'd rented this office building, Polly Palms Plaza, for you guys that know. 
And while our stuff is on the boat being shipped across the ocean, they call us up and said, we're not going to rent to you. So we we met on a beach. It sounds really dramatic. It was illegal. You can't get a permit. And a cop did come driving through and scaring us. And a guy named Aaron Suzuki made it his job. If the cop gets out of his car, I'll wander over and make friends with him, slow him down. You can end the service. And... Um, but we only met there for three weeks, so it's not that big of a deal. We've, we got a little park building we could meet in, and then six months later we got a public school. We were in it for 18 months. Then we got a bigger public school, and we were in it for 17 years. And then we got some land, and we built. And what we built was tents. And still the main auditorium up there is a tent. It's now called Anchor Church. And... Um, but I, I, I was a level four pastor. If you, if you know the four, the five circles of exponential, you know, circle one, the church is shrinking. Uh, the overlap between circle two and three is the church is, is making it. They're paying the pastor. They're not growing. They're not shrinking. And maybe they're happy staying that way. Level three, we're growing. And level three is a magnet. We want to grow. So we get to level three. But sometimes we want to stay at level three. We don't want to give away people or money or whatever because we want to get big. But we end up getting big for sometimes ego sake even. Level four is we plant churches, but we kind of do it as a program of our church. And this is where most of us in this room would need to land. Because it's scarier to go to level five, which is uh, we'll help you start a church. And then if you start another one, you don't need to ask our permission. And if their doctrine's a little different than ours, we don't really care. So the churches I, I pastored, we planted a bunch in our denomination. He planted in our denomination. We planted uh, several Calvary chapels, a few vineyards, a United Methodist Church, which is very unlike us, um, a bunch of Baptist churches. What happened is somebody grew up in a church, walked away from God, came back to the Lord in our church, we discipled them, got them ready to go out the door, and then now, now they want to go be a Baptist. Well, that's good. Here's money. How can we help you? And so that was kind of our story. We met on the beach. I stood up, but we became level five that day on the beach because in California, everything we set out looked a lot like me. Control, right? When I get to Hawaii, God gave us a vision. At that time, there's one million people in the state. 4% of them, 40,000 people, call themselves in order Catholic, Protestant, Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness. Now, I don't think Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians, but the U.S. government does, and that was the census numbers. So God gave us a vision to add 25% to the church, which is really only 1% of the whole population. But we're at a place where 4% of the population call themselves Christians of any kind, so we're going to add, make the church grow pretty big, but we're going to only reach 1%. In churches, we either started or helped other people to start. So when Wayne Cordero came to Oahu, we sent 110 people to go help him start that church, that we're helping somebody else do the thing. So that was in, two, in 1983. In 2012, my friend Dan Chun um, of, of First Press, he had been a newscaster before he was a pastor, the Catholics are telling everybody 22% of Hawaii are now Christian. Dan is skeptical of that. He, the newscaster comes out at him. So he gets a bunch of us, and we pulled money together, and we brought the Barna Group in to survey Hawaii. 
and to find out what percent of the population are actually Christians. They published a book. In the book, it says 72% of the people in Hawaii in 2012 called themselves either Protestant first or Catholic second, up from 4%. And they said that 34% said, I've been in a religious service in the last seven days. So the real comparison numbers are maybe the 4% to the 34%, but it's huge. And so, but that day, that first day on the beach in Waikiki, and I'm going to end with this, this is answering his question directly. I stood up there, and there's 72 people, and I go, here's the vision. God gave us 10,000 people in 10 years. We're never going to have 10,000 people come listen to me talk. But I'm going to train a bunch of you guys. Our team's going to train you guys. You're going to become church planting pastors, and we're not going to get the job done. But there's some kid selling drugs in Waikiki this morning, and he doesn't know it yet, but somebody in one of your churches is going to lead him to Jesus, and you're going to disciple him, and he's going to become a church planter, and together we're going to get the job done. At that point, I've had to let go of the control of this church planting as a program of our church, and church planting is a movement of the Holy Spirit, and we're just going to let the thing go. But I want to come back to what we've been talking about here today. It all begins with disciples making disciples. And I believe that we're supposed to disciple people into Christ, not disciple them after they're in Christ. You know, the way we have it now is bring them to church, I'll get them saved, we run through an eight-week course and call that discipleship. No, no, I'm going to inculcate the gospel in you so well that you walk with this person and you've begun discipling them before they knew that they were even going to become a Christian. And by the time you brought them into the church, they're, on, they're well on the way. This is why we'd have somebody who prays to accept Jesus and two weeks later they're bringing their friend to know the Lord. Kind of like the lady at the well in Samaria did. Anyway, I, I think we're done time-wise. The people are walking out, so I feel really bad about that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Exponential podcast episode. Visit Exponential.org for more resources and join our community of like-minded leaders, pastors, and planters who believe in healthy multiplication.